This is a relay project. The discourse starts right now with Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Welcome back to the discourse. You know, it's crazy the power an emergency alert has to get people talking. Uh, the other weekend, Albertans got an emergency alert on their phones asking us to start conserving power or risk rolling blackouts throughout the province. Now, it's really not very often that you go online and the dominating conversation is about electricity policy. <laughs> but that night and actually the days afterwards, electricity policy conversations, people pointing fingers about whose fault this was, that was the dominating conversation across social media platforms. Yeah, I was actually going to say it's it's quite entertaining, um, kind of like my jacket here that I wore electric yellow for electricity talk today, but that it took um, rolling blackouts, thankfully we didn't experience them, to unite Albertans by turning off of their appliances and uh, helping, um, you know, keep our, our lights on. So it, it interestingly brought about a, or sparked, maybe I'll say, a broader conversation that we're going <laughs> to dive into today. Like, I hate to say this, but in terms of what the UCP has trying to has been trying to accomplish, and in terms of what their messaging has been around the clean energy regs, this really couldn't have come at a better time for them politically. I hate to say it, but it, it really is um, very easily weaponized on their behalf. It does really help their argument um, around you know, having a sustainable and consistent grid, which, you know, they have something to point at now, but I don't think uh, politically this is really where they want to be pointing again, because um, people never want to talk about electricity. They never want to talk about, like I've said before, it's like the dentist or insurance. It's a topic you don't want to talk about, but you do when it impacts you. And what we saw the other night um, definitely saw you know, the impacts of of what we're currently facing with an uncertain grid? Well, like, I'll, I'll agree with you and I'll disagree with you. One, I think electricity policy is super complicated and conversations die out really quickly because it's just, it's just not an, in, it's not an easy conversation to have around the dinner table. Unless, of course, you all just got an emergency alert on your phone. On the other hand, although, of course, it is politically astute to say, we never hope this happens uh, you know, this is obviously not a good position for Alberta to be in and certainly not a good position for Albertans to be in. You cannot tell me that the Alberta government is not cashing in on this. Like Daniel Smith tweeted like 10 times that night. This is like they are absolutely going to leverage this situation and have already leveraged this situation to point to the federal government and say, look, look what happens when you add uncertainty to the grid. Okay, so maybe I'll backtrack a little bit and say like <laughs> they are going to offer you this. I guess it just means like a situation that could be harming others is not, you know, the thing you wish for to be that, that thing you get to point to. So I definitely think it helps the argument showing that, you know, we're making progress. Alberta has, you know, a plan and that's responsible under ASO um, to build transmission lines, uh, to work on clean energy. But again, this is what happens when you, you try and take some shortcuts and, and, you know, try and get to that finish line a little too fast. And I think, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the government using this as yet another leverage against our federal counterparts. Look, I get the political piece here. And I understand, you know, it fits into their narrative um, a little too well. 
But what I haven't heard from Daniel Smith is, yes, Alberta is opposing the clean energy regs. Yes, Alberta is worried about rolling blackouts and uncertainty and instability. But what are we proposing? Like as a province, what is what is Daniel Smith bringing forward as an alternative to what the federal government currently has on the table? So a few things. One, the Alberta government is really pushing, especially like we're not going to go back on coal. And I know that there's been arguments saying, you know, if we had not been taking the aggressive route to phase out coal, there had been there might have been reserves for for the load we were required. Again, that's not my area of expertise. And I, I think later today we'll be able to ask someone that uh, is maybe a little bit better suited to answer that teaser alert. Um, But what I think uh, the government is talking about is converting to natural gas to use clean energy initiatives. But if you look at the the blackout um, or the almost blackout we faced, if you look at solar and you look at wind, they were at a zero. You can't have turbines spinning in that cold of weather. So they didn't produce energy um, solar. I mean, <laughs> we all pray for a couple hours of light. And so the, the when you're looking at that balance, we do definitely, and I think where the government's going to go, is on the need for the natural gas, for still using fossil fuels, um, not shifting completely away and hoping that literally the sun um, and you know the weather of wind is going to be saving the day. It's about a balance, which they've been consistent on saying, and converting safely and within a timeline that's not going to put us in in crisis like it did. Well, like we both said, you know, electricity policy, super complicated. I think we will probably, in terms of what we believe has led to instability in Alberta, disagree on what got us here. Um, But luckily, we don't have to be experts on electricity policy because we have an electricity policy expert joining us today on the program. But first, just a quick word from our sponsor, Uh, California Closets. Of course, uh, we could not do this without our partners. California Closets offers beautiful, functional designs for all of your organizational needs. They do closets, office spaces, Murphy beds, and entertainment centers. And it's all completely custom-built storage that is exactly where and what you want. Their design consultants will work with you to create personalized solutions no matter what your needs are or what your budget is. And you can find out more as well as look at some inspiration at californiaclosets.ca. Blake Schaefer is an associate professor in the Department of Economics and the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary with a special expertise on electricity markets, among other things. Blake, welcome to the discourse. Thanks very much for having me. One thing that Cheryl and I can always agree on is that electricity is super complex and hard to understand. So I know we're going to talk about, you know, which finger to point at who on, you know, for the the issue we had the other night. But most importantly, can you just explain for our listeners like what what it means by saying the grid and maybe some background on on you know, further than we know it's working when we turn on our lights and we know it's not working when we turn them off. Sure. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, electricity is one of these things. It's it's important. It's essential. It's in all, all, all of our lives here in Alberta. Um, yet it's complicated. There's so many elements. There's the physics of it. There's the electrical engineering. There's the markets and policy components. So it, it and, and all of these get deep into the weeds very, very quickly. Um, I think, you know, when we think about the grid, if you want to use that that term, it, it to me, there's there's the different key elements that people should care about. One is generating electricity. So that's ultimately ultimately what we care about is having that electricity, having that energy when we turn the lights on. And then there's the aspects of moving it from that location where it's generated to your home or to wherever you want to use it. 
Now, some people might talk about the grid as those wires that are moving it around and big transmission lines and the and the more neighborly um, distribution network. Um, you could tend to think of it together. So both of the wires as well as the generating system. So Blake, part of uh, what Eric and I sort of discuss is like comparing policies, like holding up UCP policies, NDP policies. I mean, we all saw this alert go to our phones the other night. And naturally, as Albertans, the first thing we want to do is point the finger like whose fault is this? Um, I worked in the NDP government when we made the decision to start to the transition on the ASO's recommendation to a capacity market. And I think those on you know the NDP side would say that failure to make that transition because Jason Kenney stopped it is the reason that we have so much instability today or one of the reasons, because I'm sure there are many that we have instability today. Alberta is pretty unique in its market system, really just us in Texas left in North America that have this market where we just pay you when you deliver energy. It's actually very common for most markets, right? You sell apples, you get paid for the apples you sell. You don't get paid for setting up a stand that can sell apples. Um, in electricity though, because it's so challenging to store and because it is essential, many markets have moved towards um, other, what we call long-term resource adequacy mechanisms. So just some insurance, some assurance perhaps that things will be there. So capacity market is one of those ideas. And there you'd be paying someone effectively for steel in the ground. Um, and the idea there was, if you're doing that, we would have had assurance that there was the capability to generate. Those folks would have been, would have been well paid throughout the year, regardless of generating. But they would have been there on that Saturday night when we came close to a blackout. Uh, to your question, did cancelling that transition uh, lead to this that's that's actually difficult it's not clear to me I, i'm not gonna say you know that clearly that's the smoking gun canceling that led to this instability in the problems the capacity market wouldn't necessarily have guaranteed that things were available um it was the this gets into the weeds of the design it was turning into a one-year design which isn't really a big motivation to get things built so i think there's some design issues there's also never a guarantee that things are actually available. There's penalties associated for not being there. But one of the issues that happened this past Saturday that my colleague Andrew Leach brought up is that one of the major gas plants in Alberta, Cascade, it's going to be the biggest gas plant. It's actually already constructed. It's just started commissioning, uh, just putting out a few megawatts. It was meant to be completed in December. Had it been completed and fully commissioned, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We're we're going to be in a supply surplus for years to come, but just starting in a few months. So that three-month delay on getting Cascade commissioned, uh, if you want to point to any specific single item, perhaps it's that. And I don't know if a capacity market would have necessarily guaranteed that that thing uh, was built on time. There would have been incentive to do so because they would have been on the hook, but um, it's not a guarantee. Well, I don't even have to pick apart Cheryl because I think you helped um, kind of explain that. I, uh, and so I guess my question, too, is one of the other things we've heard is around like the aggressive plan to phase out coal. And if that was an impact that came into to place, given you can't have, you know, solar and wind act working or or feeding energy into the grid. Um when it was that cold. So can you maybe walk us through like what we currently have for capacity? And from my understanding, you know, like we're already humming at a, a higher than ideal rate, given what our, our resources are. 
Yeah. So, so the coal phase out policy itself. So I, I'm going to refute both of you. So I'll be neither's friend. You're so fair. Um, <laughs> the coal phase out policy itself uh, was for 2030. And so that clearly had no effect on what we saw here today. The decision to retire coal earlier than 2030 was done by the companies uh, in response to the carbon pricing regime that we have here, which you guys will like this is identical between the UCP and the NDP when it comes to electricity. There are so many other changes. UCP got rid of the retail one. They softened the oil sands one. But for electricity, it is exactly the same. And so that policy creates a very strong incentive to do two things, to convert coal to natural gas, which we've seen. So yes, we've phased out almost all the coal. The last plant's about to retire here in the next couple of months. Uh, most of it has converted to natural gas. So not a one for one in terms of megawatts. We've lost capacity in that transition, but most of it's converted. The other thing it's done is it's driven investment into zero emission generation. Most of that's been wind and solar. Again, both policy, both governments, same policy has driven that. Only the more recent UCP uh, version 2.0 with, with Daniel Smith has, has, has gone with the renewables moratorium, which has had a large effect on that aspect. But in terms of the dispatchable or, or firm generation, what we've seen is coal largely transitioned to natural gas. And we've got three very large natural gas plants, either complete completed construction, but not yet fully commissioned, or in construction right now in the province that are going to add about 25% to the natural gas capacity in the province. So we've got a lot happening there. The fact that we don't have coal, but now we have a lot of natural gas. I don't think that says anything about the phase out of coal being a, a, a primary factor here. Of course, nobody wants to be in this position where you're getting an emergency alert on your phone about potential blackouts. But if you are the UCP right now, this is an incredibly well-timed proof point for your push against the clean energy regulations. And of course, we've seen the, the provincial government doing that from you know the time that the ASO first put an alert out until you know, currently, um, how much merit is there to the message that they're sending that Alberta's, you know, grid cannot withstand, isn't reliable now and cannot withstand the clean energy regs? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, not reliable now has nothing to do with the clean electricity regs, obviously. So when they say, see, here's evidence, it's sort of a, a point on its on themselves that they've got our, our province to a point where the grid uh, isn't reliable. Um, but to the point about f the future and where we're headed with more demand, more wind and solar, uh, coming on um, and more restrictions in terms of what we can have or can run because of the clean electricity regulations. I, I do agree with some of the criticism. I don't agree with the hyperbole and, and, and politicization of it, but but I've written on this. I, I wrote an article several months ago to that effect saying the CER needs more flexibility. I wrote another one that was published yesterday, I think, in the, in the Globe and Mail, again, saying lessons learned that we need more flexibility in the clean electricity regulations. We, for the for the foreseeable future, need to have gas plants around that aren't providing, I don't like this notion of baseload. We do not need baseload. That's a our dinosaur term. What we need is flexible, dispatchable capacity. We need things that can come on and off really quickly and be there when we're in need for it. We don't really need the things that are running all the time. And I say that because we have this abundant wind and solar here that is really, really cheap. It's a competitive advantage that Alberta has. So you want that to provide the bulk of your energy. 
and you want something else that's really nice and complementary to that that can fill in the valleys and something running flat out all the time is not that what you want is the things that go up and down now we can have some of that quote unquote base load because it's just moving the zero uh if you will it's just resetting what the uh, how what we're oscillating around so some of it is acceptable for sure but but that shouldn't be the primary focus we want flexible things and that's what i've i've my my argument with environment canada has been that the CER to me is too prescriptive. It, it dictates the number of hours you can run, has a specific end of life. Whereas what I'd rather have a C is use that carbon price that we already have here in Alberta. We've got uh, political unanimity about it, oddly enough. Um, and that will drive a push towards cleaner things. But let us keep around that capacity that's already installed. You don't have to pay new capital costs for and we can run them when they when we need them. And it won't be run that often because you're paying a really exorbitant carbon price come 2030 to do so. And so I'm hoping to see it softened. I do think it is going to be softened um, quite a bit or, or relaxed or made more flexible. So I, I think they, they are listening in that regard. It'll no doubt be leveraged. This event will be leveraged. And I think there's a, a little bit of a truth nugget in that that it should be. Well, I think what, regardless of uh, the truth nugget, as we've learned from politicians, they'll always have their point. Uh, and we heard it from the two questions that Cheryl and I asked from our sides <laughs> and what they've been chiming in on. Um, I want to ask, you know, kind of a twofold question. First, just just on the CER's role, is that going to then be like um, lessening restrictions for the CER? Is that what would move you, like Alberta, in the right direction to be able to for them to have the the, the flexibility you're talking about? Yeah, what I'd like to see is um, sort of consideration for a range of potential outcomes, a range of potential futures. You know, we might have a future where CCS develops rapidly, carbon capture develops rapidly, and that becomes, um, it, it allows, say, our natural gas fleet to, to exist within the framework uh, of the clean electricity regulations. And, and there's also some flexibility. One of the issues in the CER is there was a very binary, uh, you must be under this limit, otherwise you're offside. That, that's clearly a, a no-go because it was, you can't just sort of, I'm just outside it, ergo I'm outside the law. There needs to be some sort of gradation there. And, and even the target itself was too aspirational. So a shift and then a slope to that uh, regulation is going to be pretty important. Uh, but in terms of just running things that would be emitting. I have, I share the federal government's goal and I think the province, at least the premier states that they have the same goal for 2050 of decarbonizing. I, I think we ought to do that in electricity and we can. Uh, it's really important because it enables all this other change in, in, our, in our economy to, to leverage clean electricity. Um, but I wanna have flexibility to use natural gas sparingly so again, wind and solar will be the bulk of our energy in our province, barring a moratorium continuing. It, it just, it's the cheapest energy. What we need is some capacity that can couple with it, or we'll see nuclear costs come down and nuclear will be a major source and it will actually displace what I just mentioned, which is renewables plus some sort of firming resource. But I want CR to give us that range of potentials because we don't know yet what the technology curves look like, like in terms of cost reductions. Um, so you, you need to have that space. Um, and I think 
our, our guiding principle should be that we have a price on carbon in our province that's working and it's driving investment towards cleaner things. So it's funny that you're talking about, you know, the ideal is nimbleness within a regulated industry. So <laughs> it should be interesting on, on how they get there. Now, I want to, you know, we're a political podcast. So I got a jab at some previous policies that the NDP had in place. And I think the biggest thing, um, and what Cheryl and I constantly kind of come back to is our parties usually have the same end goal. It's uh, how you how you get there. But in this case, you know, what I hear a lot and the reason why electricity, I think, becomes political is because of the rate payer, right? It impacts every single Albertan. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I'd love for you to maybe myth bust for, for everyone that the NDP has stood by mm -hmm. is, you know, the cap that they put for the rate payer. Um, and if that they've said recently about how, you know, that would also help the large costs that people would have to pay. Now, you're, you're pay, you're charging the business, right? Um, back in the time where they actually had to put the price in place, um, I think it was like 6.8 cents. Uh, it was mm -hmm. the, the cap. Um, mm -hmm. Right now it's at like 25 cents. And those companies were getting millions of dollars a month from the government. Um, to be able to offset so that they didn't charge the rate payer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess my question is around like, how would that, pol like what it could we even imagine what that policy would cost now if it was in place? And, you know, maybe just like point to back up my argument that I think it's, it's falsehood for the NDP to come out and say that, you know, under us and because of our policies as the UCP, we're actually, you know, that's why your, your rates are so high. First of all, I, I was never a fan of the retail rate cap. I, I've done advice, policy advisory work to many governments. I've done it to the current government, to NDP government, to BC, uh, to feds. And I was very vocal. I did not like the rate cap because you are simply, like you pointed out, these are not, you're not reducing real costs. You're just shifting who pays. You're shifting from the rate payer to the taxpayer, effectively. It's government paying for it rather than the rate payer. Now, so it's a question there about distribution. Maybe you want lower rates because you want uh, households to uh, not have to ration their electricity use and you'd rather the distributional impact on the government. Be, so you could argue that, but there's many other ways to go about it. It also disincentivizes any sort of energy efficiency efforts, which flew in the face of the government's efforts at the time of trying to reduce. So I never liked the retail rate cap. But then going forward, going now, you, you just mentioned how high prices have been. And you're right, they've gone up to, I think as high as 32 cents per kilowatt hour with some of the peak months. Um, the UCP themselves did some interesting, they did a rate cap, if you'll recall. They tried, this was a very odd one, because they they didn't like the idea of we'll just shift it on to the taxpayer. So they made a deferral accounts. So all of that money that had to be paid to those companies, just like in the NDP one, instead of being paid from the government, it went into a deferral account, which actually the government did pay. And then the companies got a loan and now they're paying back that loan over time right now for two years. They're, they're pulling that back by charging an extra two and a half cents from people who remain on that floating rate, what it did is it created people started leaving. You did it wasn't on your bill; it was on whoever remained. So now you saw this exodus 
we've had about 240,000 households leave the, the floating rate over the past two years. So leaving. So that cost is now just going to be borne on the few people remaining. And the sad thing is there, most of those people remaining, some are folks who just can't be bothered. They don't look at their bill. They don't, just can't be bothered. But the bulk of them are really low income folks who don't have the credit to get a fixed rate contract. So it just baffles me why the current government did not provide credit support for these folks who wanted to get on a fixed rate contract, let the retailers waive the requirement for it, and the government would stump up and say, yeah, we'll be that. What are they on the hook for? They're on the hook for uh, a single month's bill non-payment. You know? And the likelihood of that drops because they're on cheaper Bill. So I do not know why the government didn't do that. That was the one simple thing they had to do throughout this in terms of helping people get off that fluctuating rate. I, I heard the minister muse about it at one point. They didn't do it. So I'm clear. Is that like fixed rate to like RROs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because a government did mention that. Yes. And it, the government actually, a premier led and Minister Newdorf spoke about it, I think recently around affordability was shifting from RO and it's something like 35% of Albertans are still on the RO, which half of them probably don't even know what the RO is, um, <laughs> a regulated rate option. Um, so so what I'm hearing, I, I've heard the government have conversations about shifting away, giving people a choice, obviously, but is that a safer thing for consumers moving yes, to the fixed rate? very much so. I mean, think about your options. Do you want, if yeah. you have certain... I'm on fixed rate, I know. <laughs> like that. Is it the best one ex post? Well, you, you could argue that later, but um, in terms of safety, in terms of risk, 100%, zero risk. <laughs> um, but in terms of shifting over, this is this is the terrible thing. Yeah, there's about, I'm just looking at the data right in front of me, there's 28% of Albertans still on the RRO. And that was, when I started talking about this two years ago, the number was 46%. So we've had a 20% drop. But those last few people who are on it are folks that, it doesn't matter how much Premier Smith says, hey, you should get on the fixed rate. They can't. Most of them can't because they're too low of credit and you need a certain credit score to get a fixed rate contract or you have to pay a high prudential like a security deposit. And that's what I'm saying is it, it doesn't really help for the government to say, go do this to those folks who can't. Uh, but there was a government policy that could have been done to do it. Now, here's the really terrible thing. I'm starting to now see government advertisement really ramp up. I see it on Twitter all the time. It's, it's starting to amp up about get on the fixed rate. You know what? The fixed rate now projects to be over the floating rate for the next two years. We're out of the crisis. This is the last month of high prices. The RRO that we're going to see uh, in the next couple of days for February, that'll be really the last high one. As of March, we're talking in the realm of eight to 12 cents for the next two months or two years. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah so we're, we're out of the crisis. And now here comes the cavalry saying, get on a fixed rate. It's too late. And so I'm I'm very, uh, this is one of the most frustrating things I've, I've witnessed because I, I saw this coming and it was very apparent. I kicked and screamed to anyone who could to get on a fixed rate. And I spoke up to as many uh, government folks as I could as well saying, you need to help people who can't get on a fixed rate. And they didn't do it. They offered some rebates, which were useful, but they were band-aids. Um, in terms of what actually did it though, that was another, um, I, I would trace that back to some of the policy decisions probably under uh, Minister Savage. When the PPAs ended, 
control was going to coalesce within, within three large companies. And the real reason we've had high prices for the last two and a half years is the end of the 20 year PPAs that ended in, end of 2020 and control switching back to these competitive com profit maximizing companies doing exactly what they ought to do. It was pretty apparent what they would do, which is when you own a large share of the market, you raise your price. You say, come and get it if you need it. And that's what happened. So you see a, a, a just a dramatic increase in their offer prices almost instantly once they took over offer control in 2021. I've written with David Brown and Andrew Eckert from University of Alberta. We've done research papers on this. You can you can see it in the data exactly the change um, in bidding behavior, and that that is 100% why why we are in a in a higher price environment. That's about to end because we've got these new plants coming on, which are going to be owned by other entities. Well, sounds like uh, better electricity times are in our near future with a big plant coming online in the next few months. And as you said, the crisis is over, but we still deeply appreciate, Blake Schaefer, your time decoding electricity policies in the electricity market, because as we say, super complicated policy, um, but we appreciate you breaking it all down for us and offering your analysis. So thanks for joining us. You bet. You can tell I like to talk about this stuff. <laughs> Well, that is the beauty of having an expert on because, you know, you and I both know the politics of our respective parties pretty well. And we obviously believe, you know, in our party's policies and political positions. Um, but Blake sort of said, you know, we've all made progress and we've all we've all done harm. Um, like, like you said, trying to get to the same place, but having sort of a different way to get there. Yeah, there was definitely some uh, humility moments for both of our parties on what works and doesn't. But I'm you know, happy to see that the Cascade project is coming on and that we shouldn't have another um, emergency alert coming on to our, um, onto our phones anytime soon. I'm sure there'll be other things. Let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, Except it gives us stuff to talk about. <laughs> that's our show for today. We are on a new schedule now. So watch for new episodes. First thing every Thursday morning. And like always, uh, like and subscribe to our show on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. The Discourse is hosted by Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Follow on Instagram at The Discourse Pod. Subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts.